morning. It's good to bring the word of the Lord to you today. We'll be traveling through a few different passages. But I want to let you know that it is possible to have peace with God even when humanity is in turmoil. Amen? (laughs) Even when there's just craziness surrounding us, madness, (laughs) stress, anxiety, all sorts of things going on around us, right? We can have peace with God. And that is part of the message of Christmas is this peace between God and man and peace among people that are in relationship with God. But what happens sometimes with Christmas is that I get a little confused and sometimes we get a little confused because we look at this message of peace and we think, oh, well, when God shows up and Jesus is given, the Messiah arrives, well, then there's just going to be peace everywhere. But see, what, we, what happens is we, we kind of take that hope because something in the human heart longs for peace, but yet an honest look at global history, an honest look at church history, an honest look at American history, maybe even an honest look at your family history, maybe even an honest look of your own life. <laughs> Have you ever been in a position, has our families ever been in a position, has our city, nation, world, church, has there ever been a time when everything was just 100% peaceful and everything was good, there was not a squabble anywhere? No. No. So some people in their uh, struggle with God, they look and they think, well, Christmas promises this peace, but yet, where is it? <laughs> where, where, where is this peace for which the Bible speaks. So we go back and we look at the Bible again, right? Because that's our, our place of authority. That's our place of instruction. That's the revelation of God. And lo and behold, you find out that there's something about this peace maybe that we missed. Maybe that we overlooked. Maybe we've taken our hope for peace and transferred our hope into the Scripture and made the Scripture say something that it didn't say, but something that we hoped for it to say. I'm good at that. I don't know about you. But I can take my hopes and anticipations and dreams and thoughts and everything that I think God should be or my life should be or maybe you should be, and I read that in the Bible and I can kind of come up with stuff. But when I'm faced with reality, I have to go back to the Scriptures and I have to ask myself, What is the peace that you promised, God? And when we start looking at this question of having peace with God and being able to be at peace with God when things aren't the way we want them to be. Wow. Now I need your prayers and I would assume that you need mine because I'm not so good at that. (laughs) When things in my life aren't going like I want them to go, I tend to pray a certain way, right? I tend to pray a little more frustrated. I tend to pray a little more disappointed. I tend to pray and ask God if I've done something wrong. Maybe I pray with a guilty conscience. So we look at that, right? And so maybe during this season, you and I can pray together for each other and help us to realize and step into the peace that God has planned for us, the peace between us and God, that peace that causes us to sleep well at night, that peace that causes us to be able to embrace the chaos around us 
with grace, mercy, and patience because we're at peace with God so we can deal with the chaos around us. That kind of becomes our goal and the things that you and I need to work on. So how exactly can you and I have peace with God when humanity is in turmoil? I want to talk to you about that today. And the first thing that I want to bring to your attention is that peace with God comes when our sin has been dealt with. Wow. When our sin has been dealt with. Now, now immediately in our world when turmoil ensues and chaos presents itself in various forms, you'll probably notice that within today's news cycle, something happens and then blame. Something happens and then blame. And then in the middle of the blame, there's not me. It wasn't me. Like every, every, everybody all of a sudden becomes, you know, that NFL defensive back when he really commits some egregious penalty and then he throws his hands up in the air. About yanks the guy's head off with his face mask and then, wasn't me? NBA, drop your shoulder, level someone, wasn't me? Tell a lie, wasn't me? <laughs> Commit lust, wasn't me? Wasn't me, wasn't me? Somebody else's fault wasn't me. That's not the proper way to deal with our sin. And that kind of it wasn't me produces further chaos in our world and further chaos in our own life and disrupts and robs us of that peace that we are to have with God. And so right away I want to take you to a passage of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 40. Now this needs a little bit explaining as we go to Isaiah chapter 40 because the book of Isaiah is, is broken up into three different sections. The first section of Isaiah was the first 35 chapters. The first 35 chapters are not very much fun to read. In fact, they're quite scary and quite sad and quite guilt-inducing because it was talking about a time when God was saying, Hey Israel, you are not living as my people. You're adulterous. You're rebellious, you're all these things. And for 35 chapters, the prophet Isaiah is talking to the people of Israel and saying to them, God is going to punish you and this is not going to be good. And then for five chapters, we have the historic description of kind of what God does. And that is in chapters 36 through 39. That's four chapters. Sorry, I can't count them. Sorry, I wasn't a math major. So that's the historical account. But then you get to chapter 40. And that last part of the book, this last 26 chapters, is about restoration and promise and about hope. And it starts this section off in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 40 of the book of Isaiah where he says this. Remember, he's been talking for 30-something chapters about how bad it is. And then verse 1 of chapter 40 Comfort, comfort my people, says God. It's bad. So my people have to get together. We've got to comfort each other. Comfort each other with what? Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. That her iniquity is pardoned. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now hold on. There's something about this text that I found kind of interesting. Because when you and I say that you receive double, that's twice as much, right? A double scoop is twice as much. And when I was a kid, you used to be able to get a double scoop for 25 cents. I remember some of you telling me you could probably get one for 15. I don't know, I haven't been to thrifties lately, but I would imagine it's somewhere around four bucks. But it's interesting when the Bible says that God has given us in this way, I want to read it back to you again. 
when he says that he has, the Lord's hand has doubled for all her sins. You know, that's a Jewish way of, if you would look at your hands like this, it's a way of God doubling up his hands for you and saying on one hand, here's punishment, here's judgment, here's correction, but on the other hand, here's grace. And his mercy. And this grace and mercy, when they say you've received double, that means the grace and the mercy is matched with the condemnation and the punishment, that it covers it all. And that God, in his nature as being just and being holy and being loving and being merciful, he always matches his grace and his mercy with his divine punishment and his wrath. It always comes together. And at this place where we're supposed to comfort one another and the people of Israel to comfort one another, God says to them, my hand of mercy and my hand of grace is now doubling and covering my hand of wrath and my hand of punishment. And it is in those ways when we start to look at the dealing with our sin that God is not just (laughs) one-handed. He is not just grace, mercy, love, sweeping it under the carpet, but He is a wrathful God, a vengeful God, a God who becomes angry at sin, but yet His grace and His mercy comes together, and we get this full picture of God, and we're to comfort one another with that. We're to comfort one another to say, wait a minute, God loves you enough. He's not just going to let you run out and destroy your life. He's going to discipline you. He's going to smack you. He's going to bring you back in line, <laughs> but He's also going to give you grace, and He's going to give you mercy. So we're to comfort one another, and they said their time of punishment is over. The hands of God had come together. But the prophet Isaiah also spoke, and he also said that there's going to be another prophet, that God is going to bring another voice, and that this next voice that God would bring is going to prepare the way for what you guys talked about last week as far as the promise of the Messiah. And so Isaiah goes on, and he says in verse 3, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So not only has he said, hey Israel, your time of punishment has come to an end, but I want you to be paying attention, he says. Because you're going to hear another voice, another prophet who's going to come in the same spirit or the same office or in the same way that Elijah came. The prophet goes on to speak that when this next voice comes, he's going to prepare the way for someone that is going to be like a shepherd. That this Messiah, this Savior, this one that's going to bring this second hand over, (laughs) is going to be like a shepherd. Notice in verse 6, Isaiah says this, A voice says cry. He's talking about this second voice. You and I know him as John the Baptist. It says cry, I said. What shall I cry? Because <laughs> all flesh is like grass, and it is, its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass wither and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. So this first prophet is going to start talking about the brevity of life. And within dealing with our sins, that's one of the first things we need to understand. The brevity of life 
requires of us to have our sin dealt with in a timely manner, doesn't it? Verse 9, he says, Get up, get you up to the high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift up and fear not, says the cities of Judah. Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules with him, for him, excuse me. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense is before him. Remember, both hands. He will tend his flock like a shepherd, and he will gather the lambs in his arms, and he will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those who are with young. And so God says, my hand has been heavy upon you. I've given you judgment and wrath. But now my hand of grace and mercy is upon you. And your life is very short. (laughs) So let me lead you like a shepherd. So this built this anticipation among the Jewish people that they would share this anticipation from generation to generation and when things would go wrong and things wouldn't go their way and and they were held in captivity by other nations they would comfort each other with the reminder of the prophet to say there will be a voice coming and there will be a shepherd coming and one day God will lead us like a shepherd at this moment I want to pause in the story and just kind of make a connection for you and answer a question well if we're talking about Jesus during Christmas and Jesus is the fulfillment of that which was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, well then how was Jesus like a shepherd? I'm going to give you three quick ways, and we're not going to go read the Scripture. You're going to read those on your own for those of you that take notes. But you'll notice right away that Jesus is the good shepherd, as described in John 10, 11 through 15, that He is good because He cares and sacrifices Himself for the flock. So this is building this type of anticipation that this coming Messiah will be like a shepherd because He cares for us and He sacrifices Himself for us. Not only is Jesus the good shepherd, but Jesus is the great shepherd according to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, where we read that He is, the, he is great and glorious because He triumphs over every enemy. And so their comfort was, <laughs> when the Messiah comes, He will comf- He will lead us, He will gather us, He will sacrifice Himself, and through that sacrifice, He's going to conquer all of our enemies. And a third way that Jesus was the shepherd, and in 1 Peter chapter 4, He's described as the chief shepherd. He is the chief shepherd over all His people at His return, dividing the sheep from the goats. So you get the picture of Jesus' ministry. That third thing, Jesus hasn't done yet, has He? He hasn't. Sheep and goats are still running around together. Wheat and tares still growing up in the same field. Christians and non-Christians all over the place. Hard to tell the difference at times. And so we have Jesus like a shepherd. And so when God is changing His tune with the Israelites and He's saying, no longer am I punishing you. I'm bringing my second hand of grace and mercy towards you. Pay attention to another voice. Comfort each other with the coming of the Savior, of the Messiah, who will behave like a shepherd towards you. And in this way, our sins are dealt with and we can have peace with God. We can experience that second hand of God when we're listening to His voice, when we're allowing Him to lead us as a shepherd would, and we've surrendered to His Lordship. We can also have peace with God through repentance and forgiveness, and this becomes the doorway 
this becomes the way to actuate this peace. That this peace is available to you because God's second hand of favor has now come and has matched his wrath. That the work that he has done through this shepherd, this Messiah, is now matching the level of sin by which we've created in our life and rebelled against God. And he has matched that together. But how do we step into it? If peace with God is available to each and every person on the face of the planet, how do you and I step into peace with God? And it starts with blaming other people and getting them to... No, it doesn't. Shirking our own responsibilities and saying it wasn't my fault. No. The only way to really actuate and to live in that available peace is through repentance. Passage of Scripture in the Gospel of Mark, starting in where Mark started in chapter 1 of verse... Verses 1 through 8 of chapter 1, we start to learn several things about this Messiah, this one that would bring peace. You'll notice as we read this passage together and stop along a couple points, you're going to think you're reading Isaiah 40. Because what happens is, Isaiah 40 was so ingrained into the heart and mind of the Jewish people that for all those years, that nearly 600 years, From the time Isaiah 40 was written and delivered to the people, for 600 years they've been waiting and hoping and praying. And then comes Jesus. Now just to kind of set the pace for this Mark issue, is that I want you to know something about Mark. Mark got all his information from someone you know as Peter. Peter traveled with Jesus. He was one of the 12 and then he was one of the three and he had a very intimate relationship with Jesus and so when this person Mark who we know in the book of Acts is John Mark he had a troubled beginning he kind of started out in ministry bailed out went home Paul the apostle got frustrated with him Barnabas kind of gathered him up and helped him grow up and to the point where later Paul says bring Mark to me he's become useful Well, all that struggle that Mark had, starting out in ministry, failing, getting back, growing up, (laughs) becoming a mature participant in the ministry in the book of Acts, he learned a lot from Peter. He learned a lot from Paul the Apostle. And from this vantage point of learning from Peter and from Paul, he then writes these words, most likely as early as A.D. 56, maybe more pushing 65-ish. So now 35 years after Jesus, with all of this knowledge, Mark begins to write the shortest, most fast-paced gospel of the four, where he presents Jesus as a suffering servant, always on the move, always moving forward, always giving, always pouring out. But he recognizes, and he starts in this place, when he starts to teach and describe this Jesus, he starts at a place where all the other Jews would have been familiar, a place that we just discussed, Isaiah 40. With that long introduction, let's read verses 1 through 2 to get 1 through 3 together. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. You see what Mark did there? 35 years after Jesus, he's studied, he's learned, he's fallen, he's failed, he's gotten back up, he's become mature, he now sits down to write this gospel, the Holy Spirit inspires him to write, guides him to write, and he writes, and what does he do? He starts with connecting. 
the hope of Israel with Jesus. That that's where our peace comes. He goes all the way back to where God said, comfort your people and listen for the voice. He goes on to talk about that voice in verse 4 where he says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So that was the natural response of these people. Natural response as they started to realize that what John the Baptist was doing was he was fulfilling a long-awaited prophecy of over 600 years old. And as he began to fulfill this prophecy, as the people started to realize that God was fulfilling all of his promises, that God was bringing his second hand of grace and mercy, what did they do? They confessed. That was their reaction. And all throughout the Scriptures, you see this, this reaction that whenever a holy God confronts a sinful person, the person confesses their sin. It's like this automatic response of, oh no. So what am I praying? I'm praying that the Holy Spirit, that a holy God confronts your life in such a powerful way that you can't help but respond with, "Uh, (laughs) I'm guilty. That you would not respond with, wasn't me. Not my fault. That if you're blue, somehow it was the red's fault. If you're red, it was the blue's fault. If you're black, it was the white's fault. If you're white, it's the black's fault. Oh, no, he went there. (laughs) Yeah, because that's where we're living. And if I vote blue and one of my blue guys does something bad, it was the red guy's fault. But if the guy red does the exact same thing, I'm going to get mad at him. We've got extreme hypocrisy that every time something bad happens, if it's one of our guys, it wasn't me. If it was one of their guys, how horrible. But it's the same thing. Red and blue are doing the same stupid things. (laughs) White people and black people and everybody in between people are doing all the same stupid things. Somehow it's always somebody else's fault. I've heard some ridiculous things that I just won't repeat in church about that. Some extremely blind or you almost like I want to grab the person by the ears and think, are you seriously believing what's coming out of your pie hole right now? You can't possibly believe that's true. Like, did you hit your head? Did you, like, I don't, did you choke on a piece of turkey and you're oxygen deprived and now you're, you're speaking nonsense? I mean, what is happening? So I'm praying that a holy God will confront us in such a way that we will just throw our hands up in the air and it's me. It's me. What would happen in our world? What would happen if your family, if everyone in your family decided that they're going to repent of their contribution to the stress, that they're going to own their peace, that they're going to own every word that flew out of their mouth that shouldn't, they're going to own every attitude, they're going to own every action. If everybody in your family just started owning their own stuff and then saying, I'm sorry. We would have this revival of I'm sorry break out in all sorts of families. What about if you just started doing that? You didn't take blame for other people's stuff. You let them, but you owned your own. You owned your own stuff. So that's what was going on. And that was, 
That has been the key to every revival ever since the first century. You study the history of various revivals that have taken place across the world and here in America. It's two things, prayer and confession. Prayer and confession spark every single revival. And it'll be the only one, only thing that sparks a revival in your own heart, in your own family, and in our country. So what does John the Baptist do? He points to Jesus, doesn't he? Look at verse 6. He says, Now John was clothed with camel hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. His fashion was at least 400 years outdated because there hadn't been an Old Testament prophet, what they call the Old Testament prophets. For 400 years, God had been silent. But God used to speak through people that wore these kind of things and ate these kind of foods. And now John the Baptist shows up 1,400 years out of style. I don't feel too bad now. He shows up 1,400 years out of style and begins to eat the food that people no longer ate. He ate gluten. I I mean, how dare a preacher eat gluten? But he ate and he dressed like they used to. And he preached. And he preached saying this, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. How humbling is that? In an age where people that do what I do for a living are constantly self-promoting. I'm a little nauseous at people that do what I do. And their constant self-promotion. And their constant look at me. Just a little. You can go ahead and be nauseated too at all the pastors that just want to self, just promote their brand. Yikes. I want to look at some of my brothers and sisters and say, what in the wide world are you doing? John was promoting Jesus. And he says, I'm not worthy, worthy to under, untie, untie the dude's shoes. Hmm. Lesson for me and lesson maybe perhaps for you. But he says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so, peace was promised and then waited for. They listened to the voice and they were confronted by a holy God and they responded appropriately with repentance. And so this Peace of God is possible because he's initiated it. He has brought his second hand over to match all of our sin. And the way to step into that peace is through, is through repentance. And then a third and final point that I'll make to you this morning is this, that though peace between humanity and God has been accomplished, peace among humanity remains elusive because sin is still present. See, I can be in peace with God no matter what's taking place in my world. No matter how sick my physical body might become, no matter how, how many variants we might encounter, no matter how many restrictions and mandates and things and that and anti this and all of that, I can go sit on my couch and watch a football game and say, God is good. <laughs> God is good. Why? Let's look at First Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 15. And we'll move rather quickly through them in this way. Sin still exists because God is patient. Oh, there's, there's a tough answer, right? If God is so loving, why is all this taking place? Well, because He's patient. He's patient. Well, I'm tired of God's patient. I want Him to, well, aren't you glad He was patient with you? <laughs> Maybe if God would have judged sin on October 10th, 1985, I would have been really in trouble. 
because on October 11th, 1985, I became a Christian. You see. So any time after that would have been fine with me. When did you become a Christian? Well, what if God judged sin the day before that? But the reason he didn't and the reason he hasn't is because he's patient. Verse 8, he says this, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but as patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Amen. So why does evil still exist in the world? Because God's patient. He's wanting all those that are living in evil ways to come to repentance, and he's waiting, and he's wooing, and he's calling, and he's chasing, and he's being patient. Another thing that we encounter in this text in verse 10 is this, that God will one day deal with sin in its entirety. Verse 10 says, but the day of the Lord, get to know that phrase in your Bible, the day of the Lord, that's indicative of when God judges sin of all kind. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, and then the heavens will pass away. Now the word heavens there means cosmos, it doesn't mean that heaven's going to go away, it's the stars and all that stuff. And the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Scientists, people, they say that the sun will supernova and that will happen. Kind of weird, huh? You look into that? You probably have. You probably know more about that than I do, don't you? <laughs> I'm talking to me. <laughs> Not your dad. You um, spends more time in creation and Genesis than anybody I know, right? Good work. But heavenly bodies will be dissolved, and the earth will and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Kind of crazy. But we look forward to that day, don't we? Those of us that are in Christ. But when I think about loved ones that are outside of Christ, I say, God, will you put that off, please? <laughs> that, 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 that sounds terrifying to me. I'm good with you, but I know a lot of people that aren't. And when a church, when God hears a church say, God, wait a minute, I, I care about all the people that are, that are saved, that are that are lost, and I, Lord, don't do verse 10 yet, because my kid, or my grandkid, or my love, God, don't do verse 10 yet, and you know what God says to a church that's saying, don't do verse 10 yet? He's saying, would you get off your butt and do something? <laughs> would you reach out, and not just sit there and wait for, because God says, do you know who the body of Christ is? Do you know who the hands of, he says, you're my hands, you're my feet, you're my mouthpiece, and how can a church that sits and does nothing ask God to hold off on verse 10? God would say, you've got to participate in this. <laughs> I'm patiently working through you. When we continue in the text, we start to discover that because God will one day deal with sin in its entirety, we, who li- we are to live in holiness and godliness. Verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, in other words, since this hasn't happened yet, verse 10 hasn't happened, <laughs> What sort of people ought we to live, to be, excuse me, in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening. Now that's an interesting phrase. Verse 12. I know all about the waiting part, but the hastening part? Huh. You, you, you mean we can kind of speed this thing up a little? Man, that, that's kind of weird. From that, 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 that pushes against all sorts of theological <laughs> concepts and ideas, right? 
It's Peter actually saying, hey church, because God hasn't done verse 10 yet, you need to live holy and godly lives and hasten this. And God is going to use you to get us there. And I'm not sure what all that means. I'll confess to you that that is a puzzling phrase for me. The coming day of the Lord, God. Because which of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. And then finally, because God will one day deal with sin in its entirety, we are to be living in peace with Him on account of His patience. It's when God says, wait a minute, I know you've punished sin. Do you know God's wrath, this left hand that I've been using this morning, <laughs> of wrath and punishment, that came on Christ. The hand of wrath was upon Christ on the cross, and now the hand of mercy can be extended to you and to me. And we can comfort one another with that. So how do we live? Because God has satisfied wrath. God has satisfied justice. And now you and I can step into peace with Him. Notice what Peter says starting in verse 3. He says, But according to His promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We call that heaven. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in Him without spot, blemish, or blemish, and be at peace. There's the charge for us today as we look towards Christmas. Let's be at peace with God. Let's live holy and righteous lives before Him because He will one day deal with sin. He hasn't yet, but He will. And then verse 15, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. So then the final challenge becomes for you and me to do this. Do not allow the turmoil among humanity to rob you from your peace with God. 